Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 177, recorded Wednesday, July 28th, 2021. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Just one topic on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, besides and rarities, some interview outtakes. Coming to you from the Travel Commons studios in Chicago, Illinois, trying to get this July episode in under the wire, a bit delayed due to a two-week, 2,500-mile, $120 worth of tolls driving expedition through the Northeast that started with a 12-hour drive from Chicago to Manhattan on the Friday of the 4th of July weekend, with as much of our daughter's worldly belongings as would fit in our BMW X3. We were uh, helping her move into a fifth-floor walk-up in midtown Manhattan. On the drive, I was actually very pleasantly surprised to hit only two backups on what was forecasted to be, you know, the first really big post-lockdown travel day. There was a detour around an accident in the Poconos on I-80, and then, you know, at the end of the drive, the completely predictable backup at the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. It was a completely and happily uneventful drive. I then spent the rest of the week finding a different spot every morning for my standard Manhattan breakfast, egg and cheese on a toasted everything bagel, and also making sure they don't slip some milk into my black coffee order. That was breakfast, and then ended up spending the rest of the day in front of my laptop on a not very big desk in our not very big hotel room in Midtown Manhattan while Irene helped Claire get her flat set up. The next Friday, we left Manhattan for a week's vacation in Maine with an intermediate stop in New Haven, Connecticut's Little Italy neighborhood for that classic white clam pizza at Frank Pep's. It was a bit of a wait, a 20-minute queue on the sidewalk and then another, I don't know, 45 minutes after ordering. But I got to tell you, it was worth it. I've had many tries, many people's attempts at white clam pizza before, but this one was by far the best. Generous helping of clams, garlic, oregano on really a cracker crisp crust. We walked past some other places on Worcester Street on the way over to Frank Pep's, but given that we only had time to hit one, it just had to be kind of the Ur pizza joint, the classic Frank Pep's. And luckily for us, it didn't disappoint. And, you know, quite honestly, I think about it as so many sort of quote-unquote classic places do. This one didn't. The line along the sidewalk was well-earned. You know, the Michelin Guide says that a one-star restaurant is high-quality cooking worth a stop. A two-star is excellent cooking worth a detour. And then the three-star is described as exceptional cuisine worth a special journey. Now, I'm not saying that Frank Pep's is a two-star place, but I will say that it was damn good pizza that's definitely worth a detour. 
We then headed up to Scarborough, Maine, which is just south of Portland, for a beach vacation with friends. The traffic on the drive north was a steady stream of RVs and pickup trucks and cars with roof bags tied down on the top and bikes lashed to the back. This traffic just continued to thicken from I-91 to I-84 to I-90 to I-495 until it just finally ground to a halt trying to merge onto I-95, which was itself filled with kind of the same thick sludge of vehicles trying to make their way north for the weekend. And then as it was, the weather wasn't great. It was foggy, misty, rainy. You know, now I know where Stephen King got all his inspiration. So our time with our friends just devolved into a week-long seafood fest, a bivalvapalooza of local mussels, oysters, and clams, kind of some intensive longitudinal lobster roll research, and then, you know, ignoring the current UK debate about crustacean sentience, we had multiple boiled lobster dinners. And then, of course, there was the inevitable taproom tour, hitting the big names in Maine like Allagash, Maine Beer Company, and Oxbow, as well as some well, many other little guys. And then finally, we got sunshine as we turned around and headed back home, getting on I-90 in Albany, New York, and not getting off until we hit Chicago. That too was an uneventful drive, but I have to tell you, not in a great way. By the end of that day, we developed a deep, deep hatred of those miserable strips of boring asphalt and the hellhole rest stops that make up the Ohio and Indiana tollways. I hope Claire loves her new life in Manhattan because I really don't want to have to drive that way again. Following up, I have to say that the most important piece of travel kit on this trip was my USB-C to HDMI cable that let me mirror my MacBook Air display on the flat screen TVs in the hotel and in the beach house so that I could sit back with a beer and comfortably watch YouTube highlights of the first the Euro 2020 soccer tournament and then the Tour de France. You know, 40 to 60 inch flat screens, uh, much better than hunching over my 13-inch MacBook Air display. I had a version of this cable in my 2019 Traveler gift guide, but it got bumped off in the 2020 version of the gift guide to make room for bring-your-own-dining sets. But with restaurants and bars open, and, and so I really haven't had to eat a meal in my hotel room in quite a while, I think I'll actually reverse that change and then put this cable back on the 2021 guide that comes out in November. Now, I don't know if masks will stay on the 2021 guide. That depends on transportation agency rules. But I bought another batch of the Evolve Together masks that I called out on the 2020 guide because even after in-flight mask mandates get dropped, I might still wear a mask on a crowded flight during the cold and flu season because for the first time in forever, I didn't get my usual killer cold last year. Now, without a mandate, I probably won't wear a mask in the airport and probably not on a fairly open plane. But I think I will when it's a full flight, when there's somebody next to me in the center seat. I mean, 
you know, think about it. They're exhaling maybe 14 to 16 inches away from where I'm inhaling. Look, no airplane HEPA filter is going to be able to get in between that exchange. You know, I say that now, but I have to be honest, I'm going to have to revisit it after in-flight mandates go away and I'm boarding an eight-hour flight to London. That comfort versus protection, that's going to be the real stress test. In episode 175 back in May, I talked about making some Q4, some you know last quarter of this year, uh, bets on international travel, a backroads bike tour in southern Italy in October and the UK in November. Back in the spring, vaccine rollouts were choppy, especially in the EU, but I thought that everything would sort itself out over the summer, um, so making booking travel in the fall not such a risk. Now, this was pre-Delta variant, but while in Maine, we got an email from Backroads with the subject line, Your trip is a go, followed shortly thereafter by an alert from Chase of a very large charge that dropped on our Sapphire Visa card. So now we need to start tracking travel requirements. Back in May, the best bet for U.S. travelers was to take a COVID-free flight on Delta or American to avoid a two-week quarantine when hitting the ground in Italy. Then, a month later in June, Italy significantly eased those requirements. Now you fill out a what is a pretty extensive online passenger locator form with all your trip information and your COVID vaccination card, and you're good to go into Italy. Getting home, the U.S. is still requiring a negative COVID test no matter what your vaccination status is, but Back in May, the CDC said Abbott's at-home test kit can be used. It's not quite as easy as a home pregnancy test. The Abbott test requires you to download an app and have enough bandwidth for a video chat with a doctor who will visually confirm your identity and the test results. But having said all that, it beats the hell out of having to hunt down a testing place in a new city. In the last episode, I did a bit of fun with numbers, pulling daily air passenger numbers from the TSA's website to look at Memorial Day weekend traffic. And then a couple of weeks after that, on July 11th, when passenger counts broke 2 million for the first time since the March 2020 lockdowns. So I've now extended that analysis a bit from mid-June to now, the last week in July, Checkpoint volume growth has plateaued. The TSA volume numbers are averaging just over 2 million a day since the last episode. Now, that's more than three times the 623,000 passenger daily average from the same time last year, but it's still 21% below 2019's numbers. But to a lot of flyers, it just doesn't feel this way. It's back to full planes, long lines, and tight schedules that can't recover from the inevitable summer thunderstorm delays. Airlines are minimizing schedule slack, trying to claw back some of those 2020 losses, but also because of labor shortages from crews to ground support staff, the people who drive the food trucks and cater the planes. Now, some of that is common to other industries. People slow to re-enter the workforce or they took jobs elsewhere when furloughed. But there's something unique to the airlines. There's staff in the wrong places because travel patterns have shifted. We've talked about this before, but with leisure travel snapping back much faster than business travel, the usual big travel destinations, LaGuardia, O'Hare, Dallas-Fort Worth, are giving way to mid-sized airports that are in the southern part and the western part of the country. 
The fifth busiest airport in the world right now is Charlotte, North Carolina, according to some flight data. Charlotte had more flights in June than LAX. I'm guessing that that made it tough to be able to spend any time in one of their famous white rocking chairs. Last month, American Airlines pulled the plug on American Way, their in-flight magazine. I mean, it's not surprising. Delta, Southwest, and Alaska all pulled theirs out of their seatback pockets in March 2020. And most famously, five years before COVID in 2015, SkyMall magazine, which was one of my personal favorites, disappeared in a Chapter 11 puff of smoke. I... I have to tell you, I, for one, will miss American Way. I've always read in-flight magazines, and I like that American Way came out twice a month, so it didn't get as stale as the other ones. Way back in episode 15, way back in 2005, I called in-flight magazines reading safety stock, because if I was stuck on the runway waiting out a weather ground stop or sitting in Detroit's penalty box for a couple of hours waiting for a landing slot to open in O'Hare, I'd quickly chew through my own stack of reading material because back then... All electronics had to be turned off on the ground and below 10,000 feet to keep a sterile cabin for takeoff and landings. And I have to tell you, most flight attendants were pretty aggressive about enforcing that. But even with American Way now gone, all is not lost. United Airlines actually restarted their physical Hemispheres magazine in June of this year, last month, after going all digital in 2020. And hey, if you have any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S, at travelcommons.com. You can always send a Twitter message to M. Peacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram account, or you can always post your comments on the website at travelcommons.com. So the only topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is B-sides and rarities, some interview outtakes. You know, after the travel world was shut down in March 2020, I began wondering if Travel Commons, you know, this podcast would join the furlough ranks for, you know, just lack of content. I mean, it's tough to do a podcast that's more about the journey than the destination if you're not journeying. Grounded, locked down, I needed a different way to generate content, so I started doing more interviews. Now, interviews aren't less work, it's just different work. Instead of spending time writing, I spend time editing. The typical interview session is 20 to 30 minutes over Zoom, of course, uh, which I then typically edit down to a six to eight minute segment, which you, the listener, hopefully find tight, focused, and insightful. But doing some quick math, that leaves about two-thirds of the interview on the cutting room floor. Now, I have to tell you, not all of that is insightful. There's, say, pronunciation guidance. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Before I get started, Candid, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, That's a common question. Uh, Just go for West as in East, West, South. Got it. So Candid West. Candid West. That's very easy. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I still manage, more often than not, to screw up. Dr. Janet Benartic. Oh, screw it. There you go. This is why I edit things is because I just buy it. <laughs> That's all right. It's a tough name. But there's still good stuff that, for whatever reason, just didn't make it into the edited segment. It didn't match the flow. It didn't match the storyline. So for this episode, I've pulled out 
you know, some of the full interview files, the unedited interview files, and pulled out some stories, some conversational threads that I left behind on the first go around. Now, you'll find these are pretty much unedited, save for maybe snipping out a cough or two. So rather than hearing a segment, you're actually hearing the actual conversation. Now, the first B-side is from my conversation episode 166 with Dr. Emily Thomas, the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Durham University in the UK, about her book, The Meaning of Travel, Philosophers Abroad. I had reached out to Emily after reading a review of her book in the Wall Street Journal. This was just one of my favorite interviews and one that I just could not cut down to just six to eight minutes. But even with the extended play, this thread about different travel styles, going deep versus checking off a place's greatest hits, didn't make that first cut. So here it is. I've had this idea about kind of exploration versus like prize capture, right? And and it is that whole thing about, look, I'm going to go someplace and I'm going uh, to just kind of wander around, um, you know, the back streets of Lisbon or you know, wherever versus sort of hunting down and, you know, checking off kind of and I've done this, you know, in the old days, you know, we'd, I'd travel around with like the Michelin green guide and you'd go through it. You felt like, oh, here's the two star, the three star stuff. Okay. We got to go get those, got to go bag those. Right. And now it's, now it's Instagram sites or, you know, whatever. But there is that whole idea about, like I said, exploring a place versus prize capture. <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I don't think there are right and wrong ways to travel. I think ultimately it's going to come down to what you want out of travel. And if what you want to do is tick off the top 10 sites that your guidebook recommends in every city, you're not going to go far wrong. I mean, those sites are probably going to be <laughs> spectacular. But if what you want to do is, is have a sense of discovery, of seeing things that is that it's not the case that 10,000 tourists have seen that previous week before you, then I think you've got to go off the beaten track and and just wonder for yourself and see what you find. And I personally find that really enjoyable. I suspect some people wouldn't. Some people are going to prefer the structure of knowing that what they're going to see is going to be good. Whereas if you end up down the back streets of Lisbon, you may well find (laughs) things that are not so good. (laughs) <laughs> there's yeah you're high you know high risk low risk right <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> I, I guess that I mean that I guess that's one way to to look at it is um it is what is your what is your risk profile and uh, what are you what are you willing to potentially give up to find and and that could be dynamic I remember one time being in uh in Cape Town and I was just wandering the streets in Cape Town and I turned the corner and I immediately felt that this was a this was a potential high risk, low reward situation. And, and, and this is coming from a guy who's lived in bad parts of Washington, D.C. and the south side of Chicago. So I, I, I feel like I know some of these. But, uh, yeah, I immediately turned around and said, yeah, I said, I'm not sure that the risk is worth the reward on, on this particular street. Next up are a couple of stories from episode 175, where I talked to Paul Melhus, CEO of Tours by Local. I talked to Paul about the local tour market. Now, in this first story, Paul tells me about the vagaries of selling shore excursions to cruise ship passengers. In cruising, because that's a big part of our business, cruise ships, you know, they always put the fear of God into you by saying, we're leaving if you're not there. And indeed, uh, 
uh, we've had two cases of that. And in both cases, uh, we have this return to ship guarantee. So uh, our customers, one of them, there was a forest fire, blocked all the roads getting back to the port, the ship left. They, we paid for the customers to stay overnight in the hotel and then uh, got them to the next port. Uh, it was actually Monaco to Livorno. So it's not a huge drive, but the guy drove them there. The more expensive one was in Lisbon when there was like this big street protest. The ship left, but their next stop was the Canary Islands. So uh, that was a little more expensive. Yeah, that, that one took a little bit more But we work. paid it. Uh, mm. Only two out of like, uh, you know, maybe 60, 70,000 uh, shore excursions that we delivered. So wow. wow. doesn't happen very often, but there you go. And then in this story, Paul talks about the business challenges he faced in the first days of the COVID lockdowns. We were actually really fortunate in that we had the financial wherewithal to, um, to issue refunds to everyone. You know, so they would they'd be having a hassle canceling their flights, a hassle canceling their hotel, and then they come to us ready for battle. But then we would say, "Do you want a refund?" Or, well, if you prefer, we could give you a credit and we'll add 10%. So I think about 20% of our travelers took us up on the credit for a future tour and we gave them a little bonus for that. But uh, yeah, no, we paid out millions and millions of dollars worth of uh, uh, refunds that we had in the bank. So my, uh, my sympathies. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, it was pretty stressful time. Now, the episode before that, number 174, if I'm doing my math correctly, uh, was another extended play segment, 12 minutes, about taproom tourism. But that was cut down from an hour and a half Zoom beer drinking session with Rob Cheshire, host of the UK's This Week in Craft Beer podcast. Now, here's one of the many taproom stories that didn't make the cut. You know, I, I rely totally on google map on my phone to to you know sort of plot my route but i can't tell you the number of times i've been walking down a you know a sort of what looks like a very unpromising industrial you know light industrial road or you know maybe even sort of more decrepit than that you know and you start thinking well am i really on the right it's can't can't be a brewery down here no i've obviously gone wrong i've got to turn back it can't be down here and it always is you just got to keep going and trust the map and it you always get there but so many times I've thought, oh, now this time I've really gone wrong. You know, I've really. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was this one time in Paris, of all places, and this was back, it was like 2017 or something like that. And I, Irene had spotted this place. What was the name of it? I, I was jotting it down because it was just, I, I had to go back to Untapped and look it up. But it was Deck and Donahue. And it's only open. It was only open like Saturday afternoons from like, I don't know, like 11 to three, you know, hate to truck in stereotypes, but a fairly French sort of random. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So anyway, I was like, okay, we're going to go check this out. So we get on the Metro, we go out, we make a couple of, uh, a couple of connections. We come up out of the Metro and we are in, I mean, we're not in like, the third arrondissement anymore, right? I mean, we are, it is like us and what looked like a lot of North African folks in a shopping district. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but it's just like, but, the, you know, okay, this is interesting. And back to your same point, it was like, okay, where does Google Maps say that this tap room is? It's like, well, 
according to Google Maps, it's like across this semi kind of knocked around playground and then, you know, around these apartment buildings are like, okay, let's give it a go. And sure as hell, I mean, there it was. And we were like walked in and then there were all these folks. It was like <laughs> yeah. hipster central, like, oh yep. my God, how did, you know, how did this happen? But to that same point as well, I'm, I've got a terrible habit of looking at my Google map and I'm doing this walking route and I think I know where I'm going. And then I see an area of green on the map, like it's waste ground or whatever. And I think, well, if I just cut across there, that's going <laughs> to save me half a mile of following these streets. And so I, you know, I'll always take the shortcut and the number of times that's got me in trouble. I mean, you know, you can't, you either end up in waist deep brambles or you know a boggy area, or, you know, you end up at the other side of the waste ground with a, eight foot high fence that I can't climb. So you then got to re come back the way you've been. And, you know, and it's, I just, I always do it. And sometimes it works out, but then many, many times it doesn't, but I just can't, I can't resist the shortcut. Now, if you want, you can always catch the full uncut session on the Travel Commons website or on the Travel Commons YouTube channel. Now, it's not that I didn't do interviews before the pandemic. Back in January 2020, in episode 159, I had Alan Marco on to talk about trip planning, how he and his wife planned their nine-week sabbatical around uh, Southeast Asia. I thought this was perfect timing. January is always a big travel planning month. But two months later, everybody's plans got blown to bits. But back in those happier times, here's a story about the dangers of losing a bag while on a different city each day trip. I think if you're doing point-to-point travel, that can be that also can be a challenge. Because even if you if you lose something, somebody finds it, getting it caught up to you can right. be a challenge. I've had I've had that problem years ago when I was in uh, when I was doing a uh, kind of a city a day in Europe. And I had checked a bag for a number of reasons, but it got lost. And it it just uh, probably it took like four days of that. That bag was always one stop behind me. Mm-hmm. It would always show up at the next yeah. city just as, after I had already left. And, right. and I kept trying to talk people into saying, no, I'm going to be here in two days. Send it there. Finally, there was like at the end of four days, I was actually in a place for two days. And my bag finally caught up. Yeah. To me. And, you know, it brings up an interesting detail because as we were packing, when we were leaving the U.S., I started thinking about the luggage tags you know, and we had luggage tags on our bags, of course, but we also had them inside the bags. And I started thinking, it's not going to help to have my home address on that uh, <laughs> and my home phone number, because if it gets lost somewhere in Southeast Asia, they're not going to be able to get a hold of me. So I printed out our first set of ho- our hotel address and the phone number of the hotel on their email address and my email address. So as we progressed along the way, we had kind of this ritual breakfast the morning of we were leaving. We would redo our luggage tags with the information of the destination we were going to uh, that day. <laughs> so if it got lost somehow in transit. It, it knew where to find us, right? They knew where to find us. It's kind of like thinking about the old steamer trunks that were on ocean liners. They always had the destination, not the home address. 
Editing last month's interview with Dr. Janik Bednarek, professor of history at University of Dayton, where we talked about the history of airports, I ended up having to leave out this thread about who owns U.S. airports. When you're kind of walking through aviation history and airport history and urban history, when you walk through that, what what is what, what are some of the some of the novel things that, that your students go, wow, I didn't realize that? Well, one of the things that that I found interesting is that people didn't know who owned the airports, who runs these things. It's not the airlines. And so, and particularly around here, it it gets complicated. I was at a dinner with urban historians from the University of Cincinnati, and I just kind of casually asked them who owns the Cincinnati airport because it's in Northern Kentucky. Yes, I have flown through that airport. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the th- one of the things that makes U.S. airports different from airports in, say, Great Britain or Australia, uh, is that they are locally owned and operated. There's been a move outside of the United States in in a lot of ways to privatize airports, or they are more done by higher levels of government, even national governments. Now, we, there were two airports in the United States that were built by national by the national government. Uh, Washington National, which is Reagan National now, and Dulles. Mm-hmm. But they those are now under long-term lease to a local metropolitan airports authority. But otherwise, airports in the country are generally owned by cities or counties. There are some state-level airports too. But even though they've talked a lot about privatizing airports in this country, they are they are local and they are public. Well, I remember here in Chicago, maybe about five years ago, I'll probably get the dates wrong. There was an attempt or a discussion by the Chicago city government to privatize Midway in the right. same in the same way after after the after Chicago had privatized their parking meters and then privatized a big tollway, the um, uh, the Chicago Skyway, then Midway Airport was the next. And right. that kind of fell off the plate from all the uproar. Well, that was more like 12 or 15 years ago. Well, there I'm uh, showing my... Time just goes just like that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what, what killed it was the financial crunch in, mm-hmm. in 08. Yeah, okay. Um, there simply was not the uh, the financing for it anymore. It, the, they had a bid from a Canadian company that owned airports to, to buy Midway. There have been a number of temps, attempts to sell airports. St. Louis is talking about selling their airport right now, or had been. I, I'm not sure what the, the exact status of this at, is at the moment. New York talked about selling their airport. Uh, they belong to the Port Authority. Port Authority yeah. or, or they, they belong to the city of New York, and they're managed by the Port Authority. Mm-hmm. And there was a talk about privatizing them. But when push comes to shove, they, it doesn't go through in, in these cases. And then finally, something that's not, it's probably, it's not really a B-side. Back in episode 163, I used a piece of Steve Frick's Travel Stories podcast where he interviewed me to talk about the first Travel Commons episode. But here's another piece of that conversation where we talk about where our travel paths have overlapped. And over the years, we have crossed paths by not much. Because I remember years ago, you had talked about flying into Memphis mm-hmm. before the rental lot was on site. And there used to be the guy that drove the Hertz bus, and he was like a DJ. He was like this yeah. jazz DJ. And it yeah. was... 
And I remember you talking about that. Yeah, I've been there. I know that guy. So <laughs> um, it, it is amazing that, you know, how they always say that, you know, it's a small world. I wouldn't want to paint it, but it is. I mean, we've, we've probably crossed paths within probably three or four weeks of each other over the years. Okay, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 177. I hope you all enjoyed the show. I hope you decide to stay subscribed. You can find us and listen to us on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can always ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. And hey, if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving a review for us on one of those sites? Or better yet, tell somebody about Travel Commons. Word of mouth, it's really the only way you grow a podcast anymore. And if you're not subscribed... Hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page, a set of subscribe links at the bottom, and a big red subscribe button in the middle of the homepage. And at the bottom of each page on the website, you'll find links to the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And hey, if you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send them along, text or audio file to comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com and Peacock on Twitter. Write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or on Instagram. Post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to send in emails, tweets, post comments on the website. I really appreciate it. And so now tomorrow, I get back in the car. We're heading up to Traverse City for a long weekend doing Paddle for Pints, kayaking and beer drinking. What could go wrong there? Bye now. Bye now.